0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Do you have an estate plan yet? It's so important to make sure your hard-earned money goes to the people and charities you care about most. Learn more about how estate planning fits into your financial plan with a complimentary wealth checkup. Schedule yours at planefe.com slash Hermoney. Or by calling 833 304 PLAM.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Median incomes are actually at all-time highs for younger adults, and that's almost all due to women's incomes going up. Men's incomes, depending on education level, are either stable or down, but women's incomes have gone way, way up. Hey everyone, it's Jean
0: Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So every single one of us is part of a certain generational grouping, and we may love or we may loathe the stereotypes that Come with that. Over the years, there have been many bold assertions made about how the different generations behave at work. For example, Gen Xers may be branded as cynical and overly defensive. Millennials are supposed to be entitled and lazy. And Gen Z, even though they haven't been working all that long, they're supposedly uninterested in career growth and would rather pursue their passions than earn a paycheck. But We've also seen time and time again that these assertions are not only insulting, which they are, they tend to be just plain wrong. Most of the women on the HerMoney team are millennials, and they are some of the hardest working women I have ever known. And the generational differences... They don't stop at career stereotypes. There are also some very real and, quite frankly, a little scary differences when it comes to finances. Today, millennials hold just 4.6% of the wealth in America. That's according to Bloomberg. Meanwhile, boomers hold 53.2%. Gen X holds 25.3%. But there's a great wealth transfer on the way. Boomers will soon pass about $140 trillion in wealth to younger generations. And this enormous financial shift will impact everything in our economy housing, education, healthcare, the stock market, the labor market, even politics. The question is how will it all shake out? And one answer lies. In studying the traits of each generation, which can help us map out the effect that this may have on all of us as a nation, because each unique generation offers its own set of clues to help researchers determine how our lives and how our finances may change over time. And today, we're not talking with one of those researchers. We are talking With the researcher who is working to pinpoint the future shape of our economy and our world. Dr. Jean Twenge is an American psychologist. She spent her career studying how the different generations feel about everything from gender to career to home buying to travel. She's a professor. At San Diego State University, and the author of more than 180 scientific publications and books. Her newest title, Generations The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future, is her third book on the subject. And she hopes that by understanding the research, we are better able to understand one another. Gene, Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the interview, I have to just ask, what generation are you a part of? And are there characteristics that you identify with and maybe don't identify with?
1: So I'm a Gen Xer. And, you know, back in the 90s, when Gen X was first being discovered, there, you know, was a really common idea, oh, you know, Gen Xers are slackers and they all wear black. And I'm like, well, that's really not me. But then as time went on, I realized I certainly have a lot in common with my fellow Gen Xers, a love for pop culture, that we had an analog childhood, but a digital adulthood, that we were encouraged to be individualistic to have high expectations. Those are all things that I certainly experienced. I have to agree with you. So I'm right on the bubble. I'm 58 years old, born in
0: 1964, which makes me the last year of the baby boomers, not quite the first year of Gen X. I think I'm more of an Xer than a boomer based on how I have read about the generations but maybe I'll have a different impression of myself after this conversation. Your book it summarizes 3 decades of research and survey data from 39 million people. What do you find most surprising about the ways different generations think about their finances?
1: There's a number of things and obviously you know with this much data I could document a lot of trends but probably the one that surprised me the most and has surprised other people the most is that millennials are actually doing fairly well economically. So there's been a perception for a very long time that millennials are gonna be the first generation to not do as well as their parents, that they really got kneecapped by the Great Recession. And early on, the data did back that up, but the economy came back after the Great Recession and so did millennials and their income and their wealth building. So the last few years, 25 to 39-year-olds, so that's mostly millennials, their median incomes have been at all-time highs, corrected for inflation. So that corrects for housing costs and everything else. Their wealth building, which can be challenging because of college loans and things like that, Their wealth building, according to the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, is now neck and neck with Gen X and on track to be about the same as boomers. Because, you know, those wealth statistics always have to take into account age. So you're right, right now millennials don't own that much compared to boomers, but it's because they're so much younger. So you have to kind of trace them as a generation over time. And when the St. Louis Fed did that, they're finding millennials are actually doing pretty well. So
0: does this bode well for the younger generations? Does this make you feel, I mean, much as we talk about millennials being kneecapped, that was a good word, by the Great Recession, we've talked about Gen Z being very taken to task by the recession and everything that it brought along with it. Do you feel like we need to give future generations, whether it's Z or alpha,
1: a greater shot of confidence? Well, I think we could certainly try to move away from this really pessimistic narrative that seems to have taken over, that the economy is rigged against young people, that everything is terrible, when, sure, there are absolutely challenges and problems to be solved, but unemployment's pretty low. Incomes are starting to keep up with inflation. Yeah, inflation's bad, but there's been a lot of job opportunities for young people starting their careers. I think the challenge for Gen Z is they came into the workplace at a time when there were a lot of labor shortages, so a lot of good career opportunities for Gen Z is the good news piece. I think as they get older and start looking to buy houses, that's where we might end up with difficulties because if you look at affordability for homes, it was actually pretty good in the 2010s, right when there was the whole narrative of millennials never be able to afford to buy houses. Well, it was actually pretty good then. I think it was kind of the story. We didn't know how good we had it. The last few years, prices have stayed pretty high. Interest rates have doubled. So for the oldest of Gen Z, who's starting to age into those years when they might want to buy a house, they're at a very challenging position. So we have to see you know, how the housing market works itself out and what happens to interest rates.
0: There is the economy and then there's your own personal economy. And I tend to separate the two based on what we have the ability to control and what we don't have the ability to control. So we can't control interest rates. We can't control inflation. We can't control the stock market. We can control, to some degree at least, how well we save, whether or not we invest. Do you find that any of the generations are better than one another when it comes to
1: managing their money. We really don't have great data on that. You know, there's certainly, there's been some polls and things about perceptions, but I try to look at things where we have the same question asked over decades and we don't really have data like that.
0: And as far as how... They're able to learn about money. There's a knock on Gen Z and Gen Alpha that, oh my gosh, they're learning about money on TikTok. And quite frankly, I've watched a lot of those TikToks and they're pretty good. They are passing along valuable lessons in about the attention span that people seem to have these days. So in, in my book, that makes them valuable, but there does tend to be a decent amount of criticism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the venue where the information is shared is not quite as important as whether it's good information. And I think that's where people have concerns about some of the things on TikTok if they aren't good advice. So the ones that are, you know, more power to them. But we're in an era where there's a lot of problems with, you know, fake news and misinformation. And that certainly happens with advice around budgets as well.
0: There's been historically a general consensus that each generation is largely shaped by and classified by major historical events, you will argue that we shouldn't be thinking in those terms, that we should be thinking instead by technological advances. Why do you think that matters and how do you think that plays into
1: shaping a generation financially or economically? Yeah, so that's the traditional theory of generational differences, is that generations experience big events like recessions or wars or pandemics, and that that determines who they are. But I think the problem with that is, especially in the long term, that doesn't really have that big of an impact on people's day-to-day lives. And what does have a big impact on their day-to-day lives is these changes in technology. So everything from labor-saving devices like washing machines to smartphones and social media to better medical care... That's why it's completely different to live now compared to 200 years ago or 100 years ago or even 20 years ago. And a lot of that influences what people think of as necessities in terms of what they need to buy. It has an impact on attitudes, so things like individualism, more focus on the self, less on others. That tends to raise expectations in a way that sometimes can't be fulfilled economically or otherwise. And then it also tends to lead to slower development across the lifespan. So that, for example, teens are less likely to have a paid job in high school or to go out on dates or drink alcohol, that young adults take longer to settle into their careers. They take longer to get married, to have children, and that middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents or grandparents did at the same age. You know, so then they often have to plan for living longer. So all of these changes have just a huge impact on how we live and kind of downstream from that. You're right. How people's lives play out economically as well is also significantly impacted. Can you dig into
0: that a little bit more for me? What is it about the technology that is holding us at these younger ages
1: or younger stages? So with technology and better medical care, people live longer. So that slows down the developmental trajectory because people have longer, they can take their time. It also means people need more years of education to be successful in the economy. So it's much more of a requirement now than it was 100 years ago to finish high school and to finish college. So that also pushes for slowing things down because generally when people go to college, they tend to start their careers later, marry later, have kids later. And it just tends to mean too because of birth control, and lower infant mortality that parents have fewer children and nurture them more carefully. So that means children and adolescents grow up a little more protected and less independent. So all of those technological forces push toward the developmental trajectory slowing down.
0: When we have additional years at the end of our lives, which we do in general, But we really do if you're looking at that educated population, the people who are most likely to, for example, have a retirement account are the same people who are most likely to way outlive those longevity mortality tables because they have access to that medical care. Do you think it's a bad thing? I don't want to necessarily ask you to be judgy, but I'm going to ask you to be a little judgy. Is it a bad thing that we are slower to make progress with these things? I guess I would argue maybe it is when it comes to saving and investing, but maybe it's not with some of these other things.
1: Well, the psychological theory that talks about this, called life history theory, it talks about the slow life strategy and the fast life strategy. It explicitly says neither one is all bad or all good that there's trade-offs involved in both. They're just adaptations to particular places and times. So I started thinking about this with teens in terms of, for example, that they're not as likely to say, you know, work when they're a teen, and that has advantages and disadvantages, right? So the advantage is they have more time for other things. The downside is they may not develop those skills for how to hold down a job, and that may happen later on, and it may be a bigger adjustment when they get their first job, say, when they're out of college. And I think it's the same for retirement accounts and so on. I mean, it is a great thing that people live longer. It just it has to be planned for and that and it makes it harder. It also means and we've seen this, you know, in Europe as well. A lot of the debates around should we raise the retirement age? And that's a product of this as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think when we look at everything that's going on with Social Security, that is definitely something that we are going to debate much more in coming years. I mean, one of the interesting things I think about teens not having jobs is that I don't believe that teens or anybody really begins to fully understand money until you make the leap in your own brain that it takes this amount of your time to earn that money, right? I mean, I watched this light bulb go on with my own kids and I gave them an allowance their whole life, but they never got it until they saw how much Uncle Sam was
1: taken out of their paychecks. That's such a kind of stark, but very, very useful way to think about it. This thing that I want, how many hours of work is it going to take for me to earn it with after-tax income?
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to dig into some of the generations specifically and really talk about what's true and what's not true about them, and maybe some things that we could talk about to help them understand themselves a little bit better. But we are going to take a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. We work for a lifetime for our money, and we want to make sure that our family, friends, and charities we value most will benefit from all of our hard work once we're gone. When was the last time you thought about how estate planning and your financial plan work together? It can be one of the most important financial moves you'll ever make because of the peace of mind you'll feel once it's all taken care of. Learn more with a complimentary wealth checkup. Schedule yours today at planefe.com slash hermoney or by calling 833-304-PLAN. We're back with Gene Twenge, author of the new book, Generations. So you recently wrote an article for The Atlantic titled The Myth of the Broke Millennial. And we talked a little bit about this, but when we talk about numbers like assets and savings and the balances in bank accounts, we often talk about averages. And so I'm wondering if we can dig in A little bit deeper. As you looked at millennials, did you see differences among women? Did you see differences among other segments of the population, the older versus the younger millennials that you think are important
1: to understand? Yeah. So one of the biggest differences was based on gender. So as I mentioned earlier, median incomes are actually at all-time highs for younger adults. And that's almost all due to women's incomes going up. Men's incomes, depending on education level, are either stable or down, but women's incomes have gone way, way up. So it really is the primary reason why millennials are doing so well is so many more women have gotten a college education, gotten into those higher paying jobs. That, though, might explain one reason why millennials sometimes do feel more poor compared to their parents, because they have to pay for childcare if they're going to keep up both of those incomes. So that is one reality piece of why some of that economic perception might be more negative. So for older versus younger millennials, the difference isn't so much on when you were born, it's whether you bought a house before 2020 when prices started to go way up. One of the other big differences is based on education. So those who have a high school degree only and didn't go to college, incomes have actually gone down. But for the college educated, incomes have gone up. And there are so many more millennials who got a college education. That's why median incomes are at those high numbers.
0: When you look at these millennials and you try to forecast out their futures. Is this a world where family sizes will stay smaller? Is this a population that will stay in one place because they're not going to want to move out of that house that they bought with the 3% mortgage? And what is your crystal ball telling you?
1: So for birth rates, yes, birth rates are not going to come back up. Millennials as 18-year-olds said they wanted to have kids at the same rate as Gen Xers and boomers did at that age. Gen Z, who's the one aging into those childbearing ages, those numbers started to go down. And millennials, the birth rates have already been pretty low, even though they thought they wanted to have kids at 18. Fewer Gen Z said they wanted to have kids at 18. So that suggests to me that the birth rate is going to stay low, may even go lower than it is now. So for Wanting to move? I think you're right. It depends on what happens with interest rates. God, the housing market has been so bizarre the last two or three years with prices just going through the roof. But then we had the low interest rates and then we got the high ones. And it's just so many changes so quickly in such a short period of time. It's been really, really tough for anybody who has wanted to enter the housing market or even just move You know, in the last few years.
0: Yeah. No, it's incredibly tough. Let's talk about Gen Z. You write that this generation is waiting longer to take part in every activity associated with independence and adulthood. They're waiting a really long time to get their driver's licenses. Some of them don't even want their driver's licenses. They're waiting longer to have sex. That's kind of unbelievable to me. What does this all mean? And what does it mean for Gen Z graduating from college, leaving their parents' nest, coming into the workforce, getting their own bank accounts?
1: Yeah. So this is just part of that bigger story of development slowing down, that teens are just less likely to do these adult things, like get their driver's license, go out on date, have sex, go out without their parents. So that has some advantages. Most parents are pretty thrilled that not as many teens are having sex or drinking alcohol. But it also means that graduating from high school, going into the workplace or going into college without as much experience with independence and decision-making. So this is what I hear on college campuses all the time from say, student affairs staff. They say I have more and more students who can't make even simple decisions without texting their parents. And I'm starting to hear this too from managers who work with entry-level employees. They tell stories all the time about the parents who come with the teen or even young adult to the job interview. I heard one story of the young woman who her dad showed up to her annual review with the boss. So these are obviously things that did not happen 10 or 20 years ago. And those are extreme examples. But I think on the average, you definitely see a lot more young people who don't have as much real-world life experience with independence and decision-making. And I think that's a big challenge. So they've, they have been through a pandemic. They have lots of experience interacting online. But some of these things that people just used to take for granted, that you would learn from making mistakes and learn from being out on your own, they just haven't had those experiences as much.
0: I was really struck by a recent article in The Wall Street Journal that talked about how much more comfortable Gen Z seems to feel talking about everything. At work. I mean, they are talking about mental health, fertility struggles, sex once they're having it, actually, or not having it. I mean, is this a good thing? And do you think the rest of us are going to be pulled along into these conversations? And should the rest of us just get used to
1: the fact that this is the way it's going to be? So, I mean, I think this is part of a bigger story of growing individualism. And with that, what often comes is the idea that you have one authentic self at work and at home, and you're one person no matter where you go. And what that can lead to, practically speaking, is oversharing, which is what we're discussing. So this is always the question, you know, how much is the world going to change for the generation? How much is the generation going to change to adapt to the world? And it'll be interesting to watch in this area. I mean, people are more casual overall in their dress, and their speech, everything. They're just more willing to, quote, be themselves at work. And that has some authenticity to it and some good things. But in a workplace setting, there are also lines (laughs) that need to be drawn and boundaries. And I think those discussions will be coming up a lot more in the next few years.
0: What do you think is going to happen with remote work? I mean, I've been shocked with the degree to which The younger generations don't want to go back into an office when I would love to, but nobody wants to join me, right? I'm surprised by the number of young people that I know that don't want to go in, that don't want to be communal.
1: I don't think we're ever going to go back to where we were in 2019. I think hybrid is going to be where some jobs are going to settle because it is clear there's disadvantages to remote work and that it can take away from collaboration, from team building, from people just building those relationships, building trust, coming up with ideas. But young people and everybody else who likes to work from home has some absolutely good points about what a waste of time it is to be in the car, stuck on the highway in traffic in your commute. Even if you don't have traffic, just that commute can take, just eats up large amounts of time. That especially once people have children, being able to pick them up at school, take them to activities, maybe they can get away with part-time daycare instead of full-time for younger children or have a babysitter comes to the house and then you can see your children at lunch, things like this. I mean, you can't put a price on that. And if parents can do that, there's some clear advantages to that. But yeah, it's the trade-off with building those relationships, being communal, as you mentioned.
0: One more generation to go. Right behind Gen Z, we've got Gen Alpha, which for now includes all kids born after 2010. Consequently, also the year that the iPad was born. We're already seeing trends among this generation. What are you seeing that is going to be the hallmark or hallmarks of this generation? What makes this newest generation different?
1: So I call this generation polars after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. Alphas is based on the letters. I'm not a huge fan of the letters, because, oh, we ran out of letters with Gen Z. So then let's go back to the beginning of the alphabet. Well, it's too boring to use A, so let's go use the Greek alphabet. I think it's better to have things that are more descriptive than that. So I think those are two things that are going to shape this generation. They've already been shaped by the pandemic. I actually define them as was born 2013 and afterward. And I think the pandemic may have cemented that birth year cutoff because 2012 versus 2013. Whether you have memories as you grow older of the time before the pandemic, that's about right, you know, age seven or eight when it hit. So that's a group that's going to have, we'll see how long this lasts, but definitely has learning deficits from the pandemic. It looks to be from the data that the longest lasting impact of the pandemic, for younger people anyways, is going to be learning deficits from those years with remote school. And they're very, very impacted by technology. And so we will have to see what the impact is of AI whether social media is going to become more regulated. I and many others are starting to advocate for raising the minimum age for social media to 16 and actually enforcing that. If so, pollers will be spared. A lot of the pressures and pitfalls of social media at a young age that Gen Z has experienced.
0: Two final questions as we wrap this up. I think this is so interesting. Is there a way, as you pull it all together, as you do so well, that you think, this research can help us make necessary headway with our finances?
1: I hope so. I hope it will help people first really try to understand each other better, understand the generations better, through understanding not just their own generation, but people who are younger than you, and people who are older than you. That's very useful for getting ahead in a career, for example, which of course for many people is that's gonna be most of their income. And I think that makes a big difference just having that perspective that we have longer lives now. And so the old model of retiring at 60 or 65 very well might be going away because of longer lives and just those demographic shifts with the birth rate going down. Who knows if Social Security is gonna be there in a few decades, given how we're gonna have so many older people and fewer younger workers. So I think all of this points in a direction of you might need to expect to work longer and save more. Gene
0: Twangy, the book is Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Where can our listeners find out about more and your work?
1: So I have a website, JeanTwangy.com, and I just started a Substack where I share new research and some of that's on social media. A lot of it is on generational trends. We will check both of those things out. Thanks so
0: much for being here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors.
1: I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC
2: Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II.
0: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker, We'll hear of daring risk-takers.
1: What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was
2: dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our
0: mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is with us. So when you think, Jules, about the differences between the generations between Gen X and millennials, between millennials and Xers or boomers? What do you think are the biggest differences?
2: I don't know. It's different. Older people want us in the office five days a week. Younger people want to be in the office zero days a week. People who were in the office right before COVID, when they started their careers, semi enjoy being in the office. They understand why it's beneficial, but There's definitely a gap, I think, when you look at the hierarchy, just like in my office setting, of who thinks being in the office is really crucial to your work in general.
0: I was having this conversation with people out at at dinner last night. An older lawyer and his firm is just telling people they now have to be back in the office five days a week. The new mayor of Philadelphia has decided that. All people in her office have to be there five days a week. I mean, my office doesn't even have an office anymore, and I very much wish that we did. Let's answer some email questions.
2: All right, let's get into it. Our first question today comes to us from Paulina. She writes, Hello, Jean. I'm due with my first child at the end of October and have been thinking about how much money we should save in a 529 plan, given our specific scenario. My husband's family has a trust set up that will pay for any child's education expenses, which we are very grateful for. But we know we still need to pay for any books, housing, meals, and other expenses. Obviously, we have 18 years to save for it, but I'm wondering if you can help us think through how much we would want to save a month or annually to ensure we have enough for those expenses, adjusted for inflation 18 years from now. Can you also remind me of the rules around rolling over any remaining 529 funds into an IRA or using the funds for non-educational expenses? Absolutely. I can do all of that. But
0: first, I'm just going to take a deep breath and say congratulations. This is so exciting. So exciting. And good for you for thinking about how you need to plan. So right now, The average cost of room and board, which is what you're talking about, books, housing, meals, other expenses, the average cost of room and board at a public, a state school, university is around $50,000 for four years. And at a private school, it's around $60,000. So let's just assume that the Federal Reserve gets it right. They bring inflation down to around 2.5%. By the time that your little one goes off to college, that $50,000 will cost around $78,000. So basically, that is what you're aiming for. If you put $200 into a 529 college savings account for every month, from now until the time that this child goes to college, that is just about what you'd have. That money in a 529 will grow. You want to invest it in an age appropriate portfolio for the child. 529s across the board make it very, very easy to do that. Maybe you'll get a little tax deduction for putting the money into a 529, depending on where you live. And you'll be in very, very good shape. I would also tell people on your side of the family that this 529 exists because maybe on birthdays or holidays, they would want to make a contribution to the 529. But it's just sort of a a slow and steady wins the race. And while you can't use the funds for non-educational expenses without paying a 10% penalty on earnings, not on contributions, but on earnings. There are these nice new rules that allow you to roll up to $35,000 left in a 529 into a Roth IRA, which is great. You can also always use the money for the benefit of somebody else in the family, another child, if you happen to have one down the road. But first and foremost, I think it's just amazing that you are thinking so far ahead. And just keep in mind, what you don't want to do is allow this saving to sabotage your own retirement savings. So I'm assuming that you're all on track with that, but that has to be the
2: priority. But congrats. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. We have one more, I think, Jules. All right. Let's get into it. Our next question comes to us from Christelle. She writes... Hi, Jean and the Her Money team. I cannot express enough how much I have learned from you and your show over the past few years. I am 46, single, and looking for guidance thus far unattainable by my advisors. Quick backstory. I was married for 23 years when my husband unexpectedly died at 46 of a heart attack. My brother... The same at 55, and my sister on hospice care for brain cancer at 61. The life is short statement hits home. I would like to have the option to semi-retire or fully retire by the age 50 to 55. Can I? Here are my stats. W-2 gross annual income is $75,000. Plateau because I am in healthcare. High yield savings, $50,000 emergency fund. Investments accounts, CDs, HSAs, $40,000. IRAs, $900,000. Paid off condo, market value, $350,000. Paid off land, market value, $375,000. Auto investing, 5%, only because of my company match. Debt, $22,000 for a car. I do not carry any credit card balances estimated annual expenses, $65,000. My goal is to have time to travel and experience the world while I am healthy and able, and not wait for the time that is not guaranteed. It does not include a new home, new cars, or possessions. I am comfortable with my lifestyle as it is. Should I sell the land for dividend returns until drawing on my IRAs? If so, invest in what? Is what I have in my IRAs enough? So many models say different things. Should I factor in social security benefits when planning, or will it be gone? My advisors just want me to stockpile money, and I want to enjoy it now and still plan for the future. Help! What a loaded, loaded question, and I am so sorry for all that you are going through, Christelle. Yeah, I mean, that's just awful, just awful. And I understand
0: your desire to travel, to get out and to just experience the world. You're so young. She's so young, Julia. She could have a whole additional life, a whole another relationship if you want, another adventure. I mean, there's so much available to you. And the nice thing is that you have set yourself up so beautifully when it comes to your finances. Let's just unpack it a little bit and see where we are in terms of your finances. So first of all, I think that you absolutely can do this when you hit 50 or 55. I don't even think you need to worry about the fact that that's not a possibility. That $900,000 in your IRA, if it grows at a rate of 8% a year over the next eight years is going to be worth well over $1.5 million. So if we go by the 4% rule, considering pulling money out of your retirement account, plus maybe the value of the land, that'll give you plenty of money to meet that $65,000 target. What we're not really thinking about is what it will cost to do all that traveling, what it will cost to see the world, and whether you really want to retire or whether you want to semi-retire. The benefits to semi-retirement are huge because it allows the money that is in your retirement account to keep on growing. It allows you to stay busy and social, which is such a big deal. We know that people who are out in the world and doing some sort of work, even if it's not the same career that they did in their pre-retirement days, they're just happier and healthier because loneliness is really, really dangerous to our health. And so I wanna make sure that you factor that in as well. And as for what to do with those other assets, sure, you could sell the land, you could invest the money in a diversified portfolio, perhaps in dividend-paying stocks that would spill off an income. You could, while you're seeing the world, rent out your place, and you could get an income from that. You need a financial advisor, a comprehensive financial advisor who is going to sit down and help you model all of these things out. As far as Social Security goes, I don't believe it will be gone. I think it will exist. I think it's possible that if the government does nothing, makes no changes, that you won't receive exactly what your social security statement says that you'll receive, but you'll receive about 75% of it. So that's something to take into consideration. And so I would just start because you're about five to 10 years away from actually acting on these dreams. I would just start by finding a comprehensive financial advisor who Can talk your language, who understands that this is what you're looking for and can help you model a plan out from there. The advisors to look for are somebody who calls themselves a holistic financial advisor, somebody who will take your entire life into consideration and help you figure it out. I might look at the advisors in the XY Planning Network, as well as those from our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. In my experience working with the planners at Edelman Financial Engines, this is the way that they think. They just think holistically like this. They listen to what you want from your life and then they think about money as a tool to make this happen. And the advisors in the XY Planning Network are set up to work in a way where they don't necessarily charge you based on the assets that they manage for you, because it sounds like that's not something that you're necessarily looking for. Your IRA is already working well enough on its own, but rather they charge you for advice, and that's what it sounds like you need. So look at both of those resources make a short list of financial advisors that you'd like to talk to, interview them all. That should cost no money, that interview, and see if they understand what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. If you get the sense that this person is not on your page from a life perspective, then you can move on. I think that you're going to find somebody. And if you go through this process and you are still stumped, write to me again and I will dig in and I will help you find the right person for you. But again, I am really sorry for everything that you've gone through and you must be an incredibly strong person to be able to think about moving forward.
2: Yeah. We're thinking about you and I hope you have um, a beautiful trip or experience whatever lies ahead. Absolutely.
0: Jules, thanks so much for being here today
2: as always. Thanks for having me. Always so much fun to do this with you, Mom.
0: If you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. You can send them our way by emailing us at mailbag@hermoney.com. And now we're going to take a quick break.
2: Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling... In detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved.
0: We are back with your money tip of the week. Thinking about driving for DoorDash or working at your favorite yoga studio for a few hours on the weekend for some extra cash? You are not alone. These days, almost 40% of Americans have a side hustle. A side gig can be an amazing way to pay off a pesky credit card bill or save for a dream vacation that the paycheck from your full-time job just won't cover. But how do you decide what side gig is right for you? You want to pick something that you enjoy? understand the upfront costs, and don't forget to be mindful of taxes. Contractors who receive 1099s are responsible for paying their own self-employment taxes as well as income taxes. For a full list of everything you need to know to walk the path to side gig success and more weekly tips delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for our newsletter at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jean for showing us how the different generations can better understand each other. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review, we love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by CNBC's Karen Finerman for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.